This episode was first broadcast on November 4th, 2019. Diffusion. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we drive weird and wonderful science changed into your ears. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Shelley Laslett talks about the neuroscience of changing behaviour. Shelley Laslett is a social scientist, startup advisor and neuroscience coach. She's obsessed with people, how we work, why we work and what we do. Shelley was at the Singularity University Summit in Sydney to talk about how people can change their behaviour. I began by asking her, what can Australians do to drive change? We need to first make a choice to change. So no change actually starts without a choice or a willingness to see something different. And I think if we're talking about seeing things differently to create a different future, we have to give ourselves permission to do that. And that really starts with making a conscious effort to change. So no change can occur without choice. And we can't change what we're not conscious of. So we really have to understand the internal functioning of our world if we're going to understand how to influence the external, if that makes any sense. (laughs) And so we need to have a culture where people choose to change since they can't choose for things to stay the same. (laughs) It needs to be accepted. I mean, we're naturally going to resist change by the process of our brain and, you know, the constructs we have before. And that's an okay thing. Like, that's actually really important and it's part of how we're designed. But if we want to see a different future, if we're worried about the way that Australians are thinking about problems or we're not innovating enough or we're not producing enough disruptive innovations or we're not producing enough global changing ideas or game changing ideas, then we have to think about, well, is it the environment in which we are living or the way in which we've constructed things or the way in which we're reflective of our environment, which is true of every human, whether or not they're Australian or not, needs to be addressed. And when we think about change, We need to be able to invent the future we want to see, and that means by thinking differently. Most of our neurological processes use previous thinking to predict outcomes. So we use what we know, what we have tried, or what we can understand to interpret our current reality, and therefore to project on the future we think will occur. In that state of consciousness, and caveat, there's still no universally accepted understanding of consciousness in neuroscience and amongst the sciences, In that state, if we want a different outcome, we need to be able to create one where the limitations of what we know aren't there. And that really is our imagination. And I think imagination can fall into the lofty creative agency design process in which we don't want to think about it. But our imagination is an incredibly powerful tool which allows us to create what we do want to see, or at least gives us permission to think about something differently. And neurologically, that's incredibly powerful because doing and imagining use the same processes in the brain. So when we imagine something happening, we can actually build a memory, a construct, a synaptic connection where axon and dendrites come together and form an idea in the same way as if it's actually happened. And I think we don't use that incredible 
evolutionary advantage that we have well enough. And to create a different future, we should tap into more of that imagination, knowing it's not a slogan that gets thrown around by creative agencies, but actually a really powerful neurological process we can use to drive change internally and therefore externally. Our institutions tend to squash imagination. <laughs> yeah, because imagination tends to be unpredictable, right? So institutions are looking for control over processes and systems and therefore over individuals which run those processes and systems for now, you know. So the imagination is wild, it is uncontrollable and it is unpredictable, which is also its beauty and advantage. So organisations want it to be contained in a way that they can commercialise it. However, for that to be the case, you have to leave it unbridled for a moment. You have to let it be wild to begin with. And then it is through that refinement process or a design process which takes that imagination and moulds it into something that you're going to get a great idea. Because ideas don't come out fully formed. And your imagination needs to be able to explore and create and play. And some neuroscientists actually argue that play, like and in adult play in a really G-rated sense, playing is actually really important to the human mind. And it's as important as things like sleep and a good diet. So when organisations think about imagination, we need to let the wild aspect of it come out through things like hackathons, through things like structured processes where you can be imaginative, where you can test the thinking and actually be safe and protected to do so. Because if there's no incentive to try something different, there's no psychological safety that's provided, which we know groups need to have different thinking, then you're not going to get any different thinking. And I think organisations will do well to give innovation or imagination that's associated with it a space and a home outside of its four walls in partnership with other people, so whether it be university, singularity university, within the ecosystem of the startup world, to partner and allow those things to come together for those collisions to occur. And then when they take it back into the organisation, that's when we reduce some of that imagination because we've refined the idea. But we must start wild and unbridled first. That's part of the process if you want it to be successful for disruptive innovation, not sustaining. It does seem that we've got this legacy of the old factory way of yes. thinking so that businesses and institutions mm. want you to be there nine to five and just doing whatever you're told and nothing else. Yeah, which is more predictable because it makes their life easier. But I, I do think that is changing with the changing nature of work and I do think particularly in Australia, so the two most important things to Australians according to the um, ABS of 2014 is flexibility and freedom. The flexibility to structure my work commitments around what I need to do in my life, to be a whole person at work and in life. And then the freedom to choose what I'm working on and to have autonomy over what I am doing. Now that's not that you can just do what you want the whole time, it's that you have a choice in where your career and what you're doing day to day is going and you have a choice about creating impact. Now, flexible working allows those things, you know, the, the amazing creations of technology and the internet, which allows this interconnectedness, even when we're not geographically in the same spot, has a huge advantage. I do think the command and control time for leadership is diminishing. What I will say to that, though, is there is peacetime leadership and wartime leadership. And in wartime, you need structure because you can't have you know, all this freedom without any structure. It is this balance, as Spotify say, when they talk about the engineering culture between complete chaos and complete control. And I think the organisations that can get that balance and be comfortable with the uncomfortability that comes with it are those that will be successful. Those that try and control, 
you know, unless you're in the military, I don't think you're going to get innovative, innovative ideas or disruptive ideas coming through. And so what is going on in people's brains that you need to change to make them free their imagination? Very good question. Now, I give a general overview because I can't speak specifically for every brain because no two brains are alike. Every brain is unique. That's why you get a unique individual. And your brain is a reflection upon what you think and feel about the world. That's why with the 7.7 billion, almost 8 billion people in the world, we all live in the world, but we all experience it differently because your brain is unique to only you. So this is a general probably answer. So your brain is made up of a series of maps of pathways, of synaptic connections, where neurons come together and support and glial cells are part of that connection point. Now, if we think about those connections, often the analogy is given it's a computer, but it's actually an inaccurate one because, you know, leave AI out for the moment. A computer is static, it's hardware, it's, it's what you get is what you get. Even a smartphone is only updated through its connection of software. So what's important to know about your brain is it's completely plastic and completely malleable. And what that means is it can be changed and remodeled and rewired in relation to experiences throughout your lifetime. And it is plastic until you die. Now this comes from the work of Mike Mazinich, who is one of the forefathers who's proven the neuroplasticity statement or the neuroplastic position. And it's actually how we adapt. It's how we learn and change, which ties into something called Hebbian plasticity. And those connection points where those synapses come together can be modelled, wired and changed. So when we talk about changing our ways of thinking, we're actually changing those pathways, changing connections, dampening them down or increasing them with what we think and feel. And what's really important to know is when we change those connections, we can change nearly everything. In terms of what that means is when we change the way we think about things or change the way we look at things, things change. And this ties into what we know as reframing. So when we view things from a different perspective, we get a completely different neurological reaction, different pathway is used, or a different emotion is associated with that happening or occurrence. And part of thinking about changing behaviour is knowing that process is going to happen and knowing you can influence that process. We're not a victim to that process. I think if we don't direct it consciously, it will happen unconsciously. And that's really important to know. But if we're getting an outcome we don't want, or we're here exhibiting a behavior we don't want, or we're seeing a example of behaviors which is generating an outcome we don't want in society, we have to first think about changing our perspective to then influence others. Because the only mind we can actually change is ourselves. Like the only neuroplastic surgeon you can actually use is your own hands like you can get a surgery done by someone else but you are the neurosurgeon of your own mind first and foremost so if you want to change behavior or change the way you're seeing something or change interaction with another person or a group or an organization you have to first think about changing your own behavior and then using the tools of communication and influence our evolutionary advantage of language to make that happen but we often try and do it the other way around we try and change everybody else around us and then wait for us to change but i do believe the key to solving many of our big problems that we face, you know, huge global problems, need globalised and collective solutions. And that starts with being clear in our own mind about what we're trying to do and then communicating with others. I do think if we're going to have a future by design, we need to have bipartisan support that isn't dictated by party or geographical lines. And to do that, we need to be very clear about how we think of those parties and lines in our own mind first. And those things are really 
an old form of tribalism yes. that's connected to the framing, which is the stories we tell ourselves? Yeah, to a degree. So the consciousness, again, there is no universally accepted understanding of consciousness, which I think will be an incredible discovery as we, as we go forward, but it's a very difficult one to test. It is some of our primal wiring. You know, we're a social species. We desire to be in groups at all time and we identify with the group which enforces our own identity. And being socially isolated is a very dangerous thing for the mind. We need connection as much as we need food, exercise and sleep. It is a neurological need, but we think it's a nice to have. You know, we think it's like, oh, it would be nice. But what I want to be really clear about is with your mind, like social pain, emotional pain and physical pain are actually the same to the brain. It doesn't really know the difference. Yes, it knows there's a physical cut and lesion in the body, but the pain in which you experience socially and emotionally is very real and can be very traumatic. And there's an argument that social pain is actually stronger than physical pain because it lasts longer, the memory of it. And so... When we think about that tribe, our identity, our longingness to be in that is actually our protection. Because even to this day, if you took a human out of all connection, you know, you've kind of got four to eight weeks to live. You're either going to not be able to fend for yourself or you're going to sort of lose your mind. We need that connection. And I think the division that we see on a national and an international level comes from disconnection, which comes from not using effective language to collaborate. And language is actually the way in which we create connection, either be it through what we're saying or our body language, whatever is covered in our ability to communicate. When we use language effectively, we can drive really positive outcomes because actually the only thing in history that's made a positive outcome is connection and communication through other species, other species with ourselves as humans. So I do think when we're talking about getting together and solving the problem, we need to remember that there kind of is no us and them. Us and them is a really dangerous line that many leaders and tribes have used for centuries to remove morality and to move our questioning. And we know to this day through a number of neurological studies, when you have an us and them dynamic, our empathy decreases, our willingness to care for that person decreases, our morality decreases... Um, we measure this through levels of things like oxytocin, which is our moral molecule, and it falls apart, and therefore trust falls apart. Now, we don't collaborate with people we don't trust. And what I would love to see is more trust between parties, more trust between nations, to do the right thing by each other through more identification of the fact we are one human race. And you're not going to win a race as an individual, you're going to win as a collective. You're listening to Ian Wolfe and Shelley Laslett on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. So if you are able to use the reframing and try and make yourself positive, is it enough just to be very positive or how do you change the minds of the people that don't want to change and that want to be tribal? Yeah, very good point. And look, the answer is you can't. You can't change anybody else's mind but yours. We try through many different means. I think anybody's in a relationship can dictate or speak to that or anyone that has children or even is training an animal. You can't change the mind of another being. You can only change your own. And that's what I sort of was probably touching on at the beginning but maybe didn't make quite clear is that 
your influence, your ability to influence the minds of others starts with understanding your own influences, starts with understanding your own preconditions and biases. And I also think it's really important to understand that feelings are not good or bad, they just are, just like data. Data by nature is not good or bad, it's what you do with it that puts it in a positive or negative light. And your thought is just data. It's just neurological data. So what you do with it, the actions or the thought processes that precede it is what makes it negative or positive. But we shouldn't judge the data for simply being there. I think acceptance of our own thought processes and acceptance of the things we can change ourselves and potentially influence those around us is what will drive change. Now, people lead by example. We mimic, we have mimicry, we have mirroring neurons. So if you want to be the change in the world you want to see, you must demonstrate it to others. You must show them the power of unity, the power of connection, the power of community, the power of peace that is possible by creating it first yourself. And then those cynical minds are the ones that will come to the conversation. If people want to find more about the neurology mm. of changing, yeah. where should they look? What are the resources? There are so many resources that you can look into. I think generally starting with you're going to be most interested in what you're attracted to. So understanding the principles of neuroplasticity and how to change and behavioural change, cognitive change, cognitive behaviour therapy, there's neurolinguistic programming as well. Anything that's in the plethora of neuroscience around neuroplasticity and behavioural change is a place to go. And the reason I'm not giving probably a specific text or a specific book or a resource or a TED talk is that everybody is attracted to things differently. So finding the things that are within the neuroplasticity bucket around how we change mind and change behaviour, which is based on those principles, are the ways in which you will find the text that you're attracted to. But it all would probably come under that umbrella. And the techniques, such as cognitive behavioural therapy and alternative therapies that you use all centre on the same principles. And I think the takeaway is your ability to change is constant. And what I mean by that is even those with damage, disorder and dysfunction and disease still have a plastic mind. And your brain is plastic until you die. The reason we become less adaptable is through our choice to be less adaptable. But you can change at any given moment. All you need is the right choice. And that's the willingness to do so. That's half the battle usually. <laughs> So how do we put this into practice? Very good question. So the work that we really do in our company, VTI, is all about taking this incredible science that we know and making it really practical. So we have what's called neurohacks, the steps or the brain hacks that you can use to help drive this change within you. So if we break that down maybe into three steps, just to make it super simple, and this is the work that we do with individuals and organisations, is you have to be conscious of change if you want it to occur. So you need to be cognizant of your own neurological biases, thought processes, and the way that you see the world. And to do that, you need to think about your own thinking. And that is a process called metacognition. There's also a process of mentalizing, which is theory of mind, which allows us to think about other people's perspectives. Now, humans' evolutionary advantage is in these spaces. You know, our prefrontal cortex, which drives this thinking, is 250 million years of evolution, and we sit at the top of the metaphoric food chain because of this, so we might as well use it. And the thing to do is be conscious of your thoughts without judgment. This is popular and has been made popular through mindfulness, but going into the thinking about our own thinking and being aware of why am I thinking this or what am I thinking, where is this coming from, and understanding my own preconditions and thoughts is really the cognizant to change. You can't change what you're not conscious of. So understanding there's a lot of unconscious thinking that goes into making our decisions. 
the more that we can understand that, the easier it becomes to think about how we change. So using that metacognition we call taking yourself off autopilot, challenging your own thinking, acknowledging that the thinking is going to come from a pre-existing idea. We very rarely as adults think of anything new for the first time. We think of it and then relate it to our prior experiences. So we know that's going to happen. So if we have a default position, it's to challenge that default position, to think about it differently. And if you're not sure how to do that, ask somebody who you generally don't get along with who doesn't think what you think, what they think of that situation. So the first thing, the first hack that we use, if you want to see things differently, you've got to be cognizant of what is there and then ask for a different opinion. Now, using that metacognition, taking yourself off autopilot and then using that reframing, thinking about it from a different position, challenging your own thinking, telling the story where you're the victor and the victim and the observer will help you increase your cognitive capabilities. That will help you think about things differently and therefore solve things differently. To then change, you have to present a different pathway. If you've got a practice pathway of 15 years of believing a certain thing and you're trying to build a new one, your brain's going to resist that process saying, Shelley, we've got a 15-year pathway here that's pretty good. You want to now break that down and use something different or you want to replace that pathway because you can't actually break existing wiring with a new pathway. That's going to be a resistance process. But when you are very clear on what you're changing to, so identification of the goal, the brain will get on board. So being clear about why you're changing and what you're changing to is the most important thing. A clear goal will get a clear outcome. If the goal is loose, you will get a loose outcome. So first you have to be cognizant through metacognition and that's challenging your thinking. Take yourself off autopilot. Second thing is reframing. Think about what you want to see instead. Frame up the goal about what you're actually focused on. And then the third step is execution. You actually have to do something differently. And that is generally driven by accountability. We don't change unless there is an accountable measure to change. You don't study unless there's an exam. It's just the way it is. You don't study for something if there's no outcome. You might have a passion, but it's not structured. And if it's not structured, your brain's telling, it's a subconscious message, that it's not as important. So you need to take yourself off autopilot, be clear about the way that you want to view things, be clear about the goal, and then practice that goal. And my tip is to get someone to hold you accountable to the change that you're trying to drive. That doesn't have to be a professional. It can be someone in your life. If you're a parent, it can be your children. I mean, watch out, they're going to call you out on it because they're little observers. But that's the way in which you will drive change. And you will go through the stages of you know, conscious incompetence and you're suddenly aware you're not very good at something. Unconscious competence, you're really good at it, but you don't really know why you're good at it. And then you will get to that mastery, conscious competence, where you suddenly realise you know how to do something. Now that, by design, that process, using neuroplasticity and really this is heavy an idea of changing potentiation and how we learn is how you can drive change within you. And that process doesn't have to be a long one. It can be a very short one. It can be a couple of days to a couple of months, but it has to start with choice. You've got to start with a conscious choice to change or else no change will be driven. Well, Shelley, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That was Shelley Laslett talking about how and why to change your behaviour. Next week... ABC Sciency presenter Dr. Niraj Lal talks about technology and social justice. But there were men whose wishes were not only prudent, but had a habit of coming true. These men and women were artists and had certain characteristics in common. They were seldom bored with anything. 
they were constantly building up stores of information in active memory banks. When confronted with a specific need, they would call on these memory banks for information, which they would run through, sort out, and relate to the problem at hand. These men could speculate and could predict. They were artists, artists in many fields, architecture, mechanics, medicine, science, politics, and the art of relating factors. It is often not a conscious art, and the degree to which it is operative can tend to make one normal, bright, super bright, or genius. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker, or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, 2XXFM in Canberra, and my local station, 2RDJ in Burwood, New South Wales. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 950 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. 
Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.